This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 182 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Amy Knight. Hello. Dave Smith. Greetings from beautiful Lviv, Ukraine. You're in Ukraine? Yep. That wasn't just for show. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's uh, Matthew Podwaisaki. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Yes. Uh, So I am a uh, principal SDE or software developer engineer at uh, this small startup in uh, Redmond called uh, Microsoft. And uh, Never heard of it. Yeah, I know. We didn't even have any announcements today. It was kind of sad. Anyways, I uh, am a self-described open sourcer in the fact that I wear a stupid hat to uh, to conferences. But really, I'm focused on on working on open source is pretty much my day job here at Microsoft. So everything that I do is is open source. So whether it's Internet of Things, reactive programming at scale, or you know, fixing the education system, uh, technical education system, that's what I do. That's what I love to do. Wow. And isn't it Vif Ukraine, not Elvif? <laughs> I don't know. I have a hard time understanding. Lafif, Lafif. Yeah. Lafif. I don't even know. Vif. Vif. No. Yeah. yeah. No, they def- I definitely heard people say the L. But. but, well, it's just because my family's Ukrainian, so. And they just say Vif? Mm hmm. I wonder yeah, if everyone's just be, humoring uh, me. Yes. It's, uh, and it used to be part of Poland when it was called Wolf, of all things. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The more you know. Where's the little rainbow? <laughs> we need a pronunciation guide. <laughs> exactly. How is it spelled? Now I really want to know. L-V-I-V. Well, it's spelled in Cyrillic, but... <laughs> yeah, L-V-I-V. And when it was Polish, L-W-O-W. I can't even pronounce the word Cyrillic, let alone read it. <clears throat> I see. Acrylic. Acrylic. <laughs> Acrylic writing. <laughs> yep. Anyways... So, uh, how about that RxJS? How long have you been yeah, at Microsoft? Yeah. I want to I want to talk about fixing tech education. Sure, I can talk about no, that. No, we we brought you on to but talk about Rx, so we better stick to the I plan. I can talk about it more at the end in terms of when we're talking about picks and stuff like that. But, okay, uh, that's, that's cool. Uh, we can talk about functional reactive education, right? It, it is, yeah, <laughs> exactly. We could always uh, have you back too. So yeah. So I've been at Microsoft for, gosh knows, uh, nine years now, and I've been involved with Rx in particular in various forms or fashions since 2009. So to me, I, I think it's kind of humorous sometimes, you know, working on the product as long as I have, that it suddenly becomes a mainstream thing five to six years later. Like, for example, we, we first showed off Rx at JSConf 2010 on track B, and you know, did a whole interview on YouTube and stuff like that, and then just then, sure enough, bam, it it becomes a thing. But yes, kind of, track B is like where magical things happen. It seems it, like it is There's a lot of cool stuff that's come out of there. 
It, exactly. It really is. It's just it's the, the things that you know, can't quite be expressed to the conference organizers in one form or fashion. And so maybe they have poor communication skills. Maybe they, you know, they just didn't know what they wanted to say or something like that. But suddenly something magical just happens on the stage. And it was kind of that reaction when, when we showed it. Ryan Dahl, the creator of Node, uh, was there. We had a few other people there as well. Uh, that were like, holy crap, what is this uh, that you just created? So kind of to step back where we kind of began, it was a long story of you know neat political battles at Microsoft where uh, we were part of the SQL organization and we wanted to find a way you know to quickly create apps that would work on the web, that would work on the desktop, whether you were you know, targeting Silverlight uh, when that was still a thing or WPF or plain old JavaScript. The idea was that you could write your script once, hit the compile button, and suddenly JavaScript will pop out, and you'll get a, get a nice-looking app that looks exactly uh, the same as if you were to compile it to Silverlight and to WPF. That was the intent. Through various you know incantations, it went, it struggled, because you know it was really trying to find a niche that people wanted you to do, either Silverlight development or web development, but there was really no calling at the time for this hybrid approach, as it were. Uh, so out of that, we kind of got that whole angle of what was called Project Volta shut down. But from that, we got a number of things that were fairly useful out of it. For example, one of the biggest challenges that we had was how do we get this notion of first-class events? We had no notion of first-class async as well. How do we? Because everything that JavaScript was and, and is in terms of anything I/O related is is asynchronous. And can we didn't you, have. Can you expand a little bit on what you mean by first-class events? Because when okay. I hear that, I think like, oh yeah, you've got event listeners in JavaScript. Sure. Yeah. With the first-class events, uh, what I mean is I can create basically a thing of mouse moves, for example, and I can hand you a collection of mouse moves just as I would hand you a you an array. And then you could start listening to those mouse movements. So it's, it's different from an event emitter or, or an event target as you would have in, in the DOM because all they have basically is add event listener and remove event listener. But the handler itself is what you're really interested in, the handler of sending you data. Now I want to take that handler and then I want to start filtering it and I want to start composing it with other events. You can't really do that with an event emitter. Instead, you have all of this notion of this mouse movement all just wrapped inside this one object. It's all about mouse movements and nothing else. So that's really what it's all about when I say first class, because a callback isn't really a first class thing, as it were, because you can't really compose callbacks with other callbacks, not particularly very easily. And the same goes for, you know, for promises. Why promises became a thing is because you didn't really have compositional asynchronous programming there either without you having to resort to things like the async framework, etc., or the async library, whatever we call these things, module. So we didn't even have that at the time. We didn't have promises. We didn't have that. So we wanted to have something that represented mouse movements or mouse clicks or key ups and key downs, etc. And we just couldn't figure out how to quite do it. So what we had was we had this idea of, okay, we have this thing called link, and it's a way of querying data, as it were. And so I, well, why couldn't we apply that also from a pool perspective, which was link, to a push perspective, which was all about the um, pushing of these events as they happen? Because it's really just an adaptation of the uh, subject observer pattern from the Gang of Four. And we just wanted to take that just a little bit further and to to you know to make it a really a first class thing that that we could do on both sides, whether it's JavaScript and and C sharp at first, and then going to other languages such as C Swift, Haskell, PHP, whatever language you want to. It's a pretty universal kind of thing, which is kind of cool that we came out of that with. But that was our guiding principle: is solving the terrible thing that was async programming. And we're talking about. 2010 here when we created this there were no like i said promises weren't really a thing you know dojo had their deferreds and jquery had its own kind of thing with their ajax stack but it wasn't really a thing yet and so we were kind of the first ones to come out there and say hey we've got this great idea but oh it's closed source so kind of forget about it and then comes 2012 we actually got everything open sourced and all of that 
And then it just kind of rapidly expanded from there once uh, Netflix and others started to adopt it. Uh, so that's kind of the brief history of, of where we where we were and uh, how we got to where we are today. Can you maybe talk about what the practical experience of using these is like compared to something like callbacks or promises? Sure, absolutely. So one of the biggest problems that we had was with callbacks is the fact that you're dealing with these fairly complex, for example, state machines when you're trying to model some asynchronous behavior. Problem is, is that, you know, the, what you would do is you would always make your last parameter that callback. And especially with node, it added the error and then the value that you would get back. The problem with that was, is that you would keep on putting your logic at the next level, at the next level, at the next level. And soon it would turn into uh, what I would call a bull's head or a cow's head in the fact that it would just walk off the screen and then walk back. Uh, but there was really no good unified way of dealing with these complex state machines. Everyone calls it callback hell. They've got various names for it. But it's very hard to linearize your code and you know just make it look like you're having a coherent thought. Instead, you're always thinking about the asynchronous behavior. You're like, uh, and somehow I hope this global state value is set here. And if it isn't, I'll have to call an error. And that error routine goes here. It becomes very, very disjointed very quickly when you're trying to build fairly large, complex apps. I'm not just talking about the, you know, the linear approach. I'm talking about more complex state logic, whether you're going to, for example, in Netflix's case, launch the movie player, which involves authorizing you as a user, logging in, logging in, authorizing you, and then getting your list of movies, all of those things being callbacks. Well, there are many error states in between, and how do you model those? And suddenly your, your logic gets kind of lost in this sea of callbacks, as it were. With promises, luckily they tried to fix a lot of that uh, so that you could kind of linearize or, or you know, think of it in a single coherent thought. Okay, so I can say initialize the player, meaning launch the player. Then I can get uh, authorize the user or log them in. And if it fails, then I send them to unauthorized. Next, I'll get the list of movies. Else, I'll just say you're not allowed to see any movies. You haven't paid or what have you. So it kind of builds up this nice little chain where you can chain these previously async operations into very linear style. So you can actually kind of follow the business logic as it goes through. But with observables, we had a different approach there because what we were trying to solve is not only the single value that promises try to solve for, you know, one, uh, so for example, logging in and so forth, but also dealing with events because events could happen uh, zero to infinite number of times, such as your mouse movements to uh, an AJAX request, which could only happen once. So to solve those under a single banner, and not only that, but have various things that we could do along the way, such as adding and cancellation and so forth, things that the promise standard, for example, doesn't have today is they don't have finally, they don't have cancel, they don't have a lot of these things, which we've had since day one, because we were kind of realizing that when we're dealing with evented systems and all of that, we need a way to kind of have it transactional in a way. That's where observables really play is, is you've got kind of this four-quadrant approach where you've got you know synchronous and asynchronous, single-value, multiple-value. Well, in that uh, single-value asynchronous, uh, obviously you have promises, but observables also work there. But in the uh, multiple-value asynchronous, when well, we're talking about collections, collections of mouse movements, collections of mouse clicks, etc., that's where you have observables up there, where your data, when it becomes available, is pushed to you. So that's kind of putting everything kind of in perspective there. So that makes sense. My impression is observables and the RxJS stuff is a lot better if you're working with these collections of things. But would you use the same approach in the same libraries if you're just kind of doing that nested logic style that you were talking about with the promises example? Where you need to fetch some data and it comes back and then maybe you make another request. Maybe you don't. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can do a lot of those very same things in making it a very straightforward, linear style call where I can say do this, then this, then this. Oh, by the way, if an exception happens, I have a catch handler here. I have a finally handler that does something here. But then you've got as well as you've got other things such as retry logic. So I want uh, you know retry three times or something like that. And if it fails, I, re- I return some sort of default logic. So absolutely, you can you can model that same kind of approach. You know, to go back to our, our Netflix example, uh, we could easily uh, model everything that we, we talked about with logging in, uh, etc., as observables. And with promises, you got a, you know a dot then to kind of connect things together. And in uh, in Rx, you have any number of ways to kind of connect things together. The most common one that you're going to find is flat map. Which the idea there is, it seems kind of like a scary name, very academic name for it. But all you have to really think of it is to is using a map, which is basically a thing that we should all know from arrays in JavaScript, where you just basically transform each element in the array to something else. And then merge is basically then in time, as things go along, you just merge them back into a single collection. Because like I said, I'm taking multiple collections and I'm mapping to change their values. And then I want to merge them into a single collection and give it back to you. So going back to the Netflix example, we could uh, implement all of this with observables today and have a really nice experience. For example, I can say player.initialize.flatmap, get movies.retry three times, .catch, return default data. And the most interesting aspect of it is, say, take until player.cancel. So someone hits the cancel button, now suddenly the observable sequence stops altogether. And I don't know quite how to, to, to do that in promises. I'm sure you can easily do the same kind of thing. But take until is a very, very useful thing when you're talking about sequences. For example, if you're talking about drag and drop, that you can model as mouse down dot flat map once again, uh, returning the mouse movements take until mouse up. So basically you're just saying mouse down and mouse move and take until mouse up. It's just that kind of linear language that you're talking about here. And so it's it's very much the same way here, which is uh, load all the movies, try three times. Oh, by the way, take until someone hits the cancel button, meaning it's taking far too long and, or I didn't mean to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that does make sense. My question was, you know, Rx has been around for a while, but the observable spec is now being looked at. So how much has Rx influenced that? I would say nearly 100% in terms of the current design. So the, the previous design, when Jafar Hussein, who's been a, you know, a good friend of Rx since, since day one, and then he left Microsoft to go work at, uh, at Netflix. Uh, so he's been a big advocate of Rx, and he's kind of the one who's you know, dr- driven uh, or been the catalyst to drive adoption at Netflix. Now, we saw the standardization of promises for ES2015, and what we saw you know, is necessarily things that we weren't exactly happy with and the fact that there were you know, things like cancellation was missing, final, uh, finalization was missing, a lot of those things. But at the same point, we thought that since JavaScript itself now, I'm not talking about the DOM, but the JavaScript language itself does not have an eventing system. Because if you're talking about eventing systems, you're talking about something like an event emitter, which is basically a subject observer pattern, or you're talking about uh, you know, an event target, which is basically, once again, that same kind of pattern. But that isn't core to JavaScript itself. So we're like, well, why don't we add something to give you first-class events in the core language itself? And so that led to discussions with uh, Jafar and now Kevin Smith, uh, a.k.a. Zen Persing on GitHub. And the, the first way that they tried to do it was with async generators, basically turning generators on their head to basically model something where it, it becomes, uh, instead of a pool system with generators, when you're calling dot next, dot next, dot next, you're actually feeding in ne- uh, new values calling dot next with an actual value. So let me step back further when I'm talking about subject observer and so forth. In the case of Rx, for example, what I really mean by subject observer, reading observable and observer, 
what I mean by that is is that you have an observable, which is a producer of values. So it's your mouse movements and so forth. Then you have your observers, which are the actual uh, receivers of the logic there. So that's kind of you know clarifying just uh, the nomenclature that we're using. That particular proposal about using async generators has since been abandoned, and now what we have is the uh, the observable spec uh, that we have right now, or ES observable, and that design is pretty much a hundred percent of what RX is today. In terms of you have your observers, you have your observables, and you have your subscription objects, which allow you to in- kind of encapsulate all of the uh, startup and teardown logic of your particular sequence that you're trying to do. And that's kind of, kind of really one key uh, aspect. You know, it's kind of hard to draw in in the air on a, on a podcast, but the idea is is when you attach a an observer to an observable, you get back this handle or this subscription, and that subscription knows everything about how you tear down a particular thing, such as with mouse movements, uh, it knows everything how to tear down, meaning uh, remove the event listener from the particular event target that you happen to be listening to, whether it's documents and so forth. Once again, promises don't really have this kind of thing. So it's all that codified into one. So it's, I think it's, it's, it's fairly interesting. And so it's, it's a fairly true to, to RX implementation as it is right now. And right now it's uh, still in stage one for ES7 slash 2016. But I certainly have hopes that it's going to move forward. And so, yeah, the idea there is that you would get basically first-class events. So now you can talk about, uh, in the JavaScript language itself, now you have a way of talking about mouse movements or any such things as a first-class object. So I can now pass in these collections to you. You can return these collections just like you can with promises for single values. So speaking of promises, uh, can mm-hmm. you tell us about the relationship between observables and promises? It seems like some of the examples on the RxJS uh, GitHub docs uh, actually include promises mixed in with observables somehow. Absolutely. Can you tell us, is, is that encouraged? You know, is there a use case for that specifically? Uh- yeah, it is absolutely encouraged for a number of reasons. First reason is, is there are a lot of APIs out there that use promises naturally. So why would I want to to make someone who wants to, to be productive in Rx aban- completely abandon the way they're programming right now and just ob- hop on the observable bandwagon? That's just not realistic. Instead, what I want to do is, is make someone productive as possible using the libraries that they already use. So, for example, we have any number of operators such as concats, flatmap, etc. that natively just support promises uh, and then convert them into observable sequences under the covers, but it's not really you know, noticeable to you. So you can pass in, for example, you can pass in a promise of an AJAX request. You can pass in a promise of, of the document loading, whatever it happens to be. And then we'll just treat it just like any other observable value. And what you get out of that is once you, you don't have to leave the libraries that you're already familiar with, now you can just start mixing it together with events very, very nicely. So you can get like a gr- really nice autocomplete example. So like I said, we, is you can mix events and promises together in an autocomplete scenario because you're mixing in key ups, you know, making sure they're distinct and debouncing it a little bit all through observables. And then you can call flat map and call flat map or flat map latest, which basically makes sure it's only the latest value that you get back with a promise. And then suddenly you've got this magic combination of the two of them together. And not only that, but with ES7 slash 2016, they have this whole notion of async await. And that's really cool in the fact that you can, you know, await promised values and so forth. So, for example, any place that we accept promises, we now can accept uh, async functions as well. Uh, So you can await certain things in there. So I can flat map, uh, say flat map, async function, data, and then call await on some promise, and it just magically works. So it has so many upsides to just treating it uh, natively like, uh, like any other piece of data. Now, as you were describing that, are you talking about the proposed ES7 feature or RxJS as it exists today? Uh, the proposed ES7 feature, which is already shipping in some browsers today, uh, for example, 
uh, Microsoft Edge already has it available in some of the latest uh, insider builds right now. And I think Babel and others, you know, can pre-compile it, you know, compile it for you. But yeah, I'm talking about that feature. Uh, we do have in, internally to into uh, RX, we have something that makes observables as those kind of awaitable, but using that function star and yield and so forth that you know you can see, you've seen in so many other libraries, and we just have it supporting observables as last, basically taking the last value because really with observables you only want one value anyways in that case. So can you talk a little bit about the experience of using this RxJS stuff in some of the common frameworks out there? Sure. Are, are these things that you can kind of just drop in if you're using an Angular app or a React app or something like that? Absolutely. There are just a really huge set of libraries that uh, basically uh, you can use with React today in RxJS. It's just we actually have, uh, there's a Gitbook out there that's linked off of our page. And in there, we have a number of things where people are mixing Rx with React, Rx instead of Flux, and so forth. So there's a lot of really good integration points between the two. For example, using subjects, which are both observers and observables, as kind of your state for React. So that's, for example, you can you know, set your state and so forth, but instead of having it just a static object or something like that, but you have it as a subject. That, to me, is kind of cool. And for Angular itself, we've shipped Angular, Rx.Angular, for quite a while, and that helps you deal with any number of things from uh, watches to more of the computed property kind of things to dealing with events uh, and turning them into observables, as well as abiding by the safe apply so that you can basically make sure that whenever you're working on something that it happens during the safe apply. So all of those things are really good integration points, and there are many, many examples of people using that today. In Angular going forward, they're uh, using Rx at least at the data layer, uh, for example, in the HTTP will now be observables, and you'll basically get a really nice experience. So uh, there's a community effort right now to take Rx as it stands today, make it a little bit more performant and a little bit more modular, and just have the community really kind of pitch in and, and make this a really amazing library. So I really, you know, absolutely encourage that because you know I honestly want to see this thing grow. But at the same point, you know, getting those sweet spots for the Angulars, the Reacts, and all the other libraries out there that want to use this as their as their data layer, as their eventing layer, what have you, uh, we want to give them a really great experience for doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, like I said, if you look at our Git book, you'll just see just a massive amount of examples of people using React, uh, Angular, and so forth uh, with Rx natively. So if you can't find some inspiration, then I don't know how to help you. And that really is the key. Is if the, if there isn't, then just go to our Gitter channel. You'll chances are you'll find something that kind of works for you. So is there a situation where you feel like Observables might not be better than callbacks or promises. Uh, are there other weaknesses, maybe, or, or places where it doesn't work so well? Well, there are. There's certainly, you know, it, it might be overkill if you if you only have one callback or you only have one event kind of thing. If you're really not worried too much and you want to keep your library small, there's really no harm in not using RX at all. Where callbacks will do just fine. You know, if if all I have is just one little thing to do with with a callback, you know, converting that to an observable might be overkill, especially since it's an external library versus something that's completely native. Now, if we're we're talking native, then that's a totally different story. But there are absolutely trade-offs to make in terms of size of your application and so forth, whether you want to make the investment in in observables or not. And kind of that that pain point that you're going to hit, uh, like I said, is when managing these callbacks just becomes unbearable because all of the state is lying around and you just don't know where the logic is. Or for things where where promises don't quite fit as well, especially when you're dealing with multiple values and so forth. So if you're talking about events, maybe observables might be a good thing there, especially if you're trying to coordinate uh, multiple events together. So as we were kind of talking about front-end frameworks, why would someone use Rx on the back end in place of just plain old node streams? 
Okay. Uh, yeah, node streams are very good at dealing with binary data. You know, they've been decent at it. I won't say good because uh, they've had their ups and downs with the design process. You know, streams one being. Uh, an absolute mess when it comes to pause and resume semantics, back pressure, and so forth, which they tried to fix in streams two with the introduction of readable, writable, and transform streams. Then in streams three, you know, trying to add in and these uh, these bulk uh, write operations. Anyway, so that's really good for that. But it's in, in terms of handling object mode data, which they have a, a capability of doing. It's not super, super great because you really only have one mode of talking to one another, and that's basically pipe. So if I wanted to do a map operation or a filter operation, I would have to implement a custom transform stream and then pipe it into that. And if I wanted to do some filtering or group buys, then I would have to pipe that into a group by stream. So like I said, it's a very convoluted way of doing things versus I can say dot filter where the values are this. And I can group by uh, these particular values, and then I can do some other things such as buffering and mapping and merging, etc., uh, that node streams just aren't very good at. They're very good at straight-ahead I.O., okay? So I've got an HTTP server. I want to send some data in. I want to mux it to, uh, you know, through a pipe, and I want to demux it on the other side. Great. Node streams are really good at that. But if you're talking about you know, stock ticker data, you're talking about WebSocket data, you're talking about any sort of data stream in terms of being raw data, it really kind of helps you to think about with observables because now you have this kind of relational algebra that you could use with it, such as your maps, your filters, your uh, reduces, your group buys, and so forth that allow you to really time slice data really nicely. And we do have an example of that in our examples, and I, and I definitely need to add more of them. But it was taking stock ticker data and starting to analyze them by ticker uh, symbol and then uh, time slicing it by five days to see whether there have been uh, 10% increases or decreases over time. So all of that is really, really valuable in terms of what you would do on the server because when we're talking about Node, we're usually talking about you know data transfer, data processing, and so forth. And Rx streams, as it were, is really, really good at that. I'd be interested in looking at that with something like RabbitMQ. But. Absolutely, yeah. That's kind of the way that uh, that I had approached it earlier. Is is doing that is is basically yeah taking in this data, then starting to time slice it, uh, starting to do some group buys and so forth by symbol, etc. So yeah, absolutely. Basically, I wanted to get your opinion on the future. Are promises dying, and should we all run and hide? You know, because <laughs> like the sky is falling. No, I don't think promises should die. Do I think they should be fixed in its current incantation? Absolutely, yes. There are certainly a lot of you know very low bar things that they could have done and that they should have done, such as uh, the adding the finally case, so that you know when you're dealing with anything I/O related, that you can actually tear it down afterwards and be sure that nobody's going to come in afterwards and do it then on you again, and suddenly now you've entered in a weird state. So that certainly needs to be fixed. Uh, the cancellation, you know, it, it's maybe a 20% case that, that people use it for. So having an additional, say, a subclass for a cancelable promise can be done today and, and hopefully will be. I don't know if there's a standard proposal out there for it yet, but I know that there's certainly been discussion around it to fix those issues. I mean, there are other things, obviously, that you know, some people don't like about promises and the fact that you know, promises will, will swallow errors whether you like it or not, and then basically you have to catch them on the next denable instead of actually getting that error thrown to you. And there are other things like, such as the forced async model. So it's always going to be async whether you wanted it to be or not. Uh, whereas callbacks could be perfectly synchronous. And now you've just added on this overhead of even as minimal as it may be with this next tick or you know, micro task uh, kind of thing. It's still in the fact that you took up an extra tick that you might not have wanted to. I don't want to ask you to speak for others, but there is this sentiment out there that you know, we should stop using promises, you know, expressed by people. I've heard it from Netflix and stuff. But you know, even if promises fix some of these, uh, let's call them shortcomings, 
Mm-hmm. Would you still be a proponent of observables over promises generally or uh, not? Gen- generally, yes. And the, and the reason why is it because is it kind of unifies, I would say, all four quadrants of that reactive programming quadrant that I was talking about earlier. And the fact that you can take anything and turn it into an observable. So whether it's an, an event, whether it's a callback, uh, multi-value things such as an array, set, map, etc., or just single value, you have adapt for pretty much everything, and then you could treat it as a single programmatic model. And the reason why that's interesting for a lot of people, uh, for example, if you're creating and using a stack such as Vertex or, or what have you, uh, and you're using RxJava on the back end, now you're suddenly, okay, I understand observables. This is great. I'm doing, I'm doing server-side programming. It's observables. This is great. Now I get transferred to the front end. Oh, by the way, now you're dealing with observables again. Oh, I understand observables. So suddenly your skills as a developer are immediately transferable from one thing to the other. They do not diverge in terms of meaning and so forth versus, you know, Java promises versus JavaScript promises are are different and they act different. So if, if you had this basically, I would call it more along the lines of, you know, just you might be speaking in different programming languages, but you still speak the same domain language, as it were. And that's certainly one advantage you just can't get in many other places. And not only that, but like I said, is you get the advantages with deterministic teardown of events, good error handling, retry logic, and basically the whole kitchen sink, as it were, if you really want it. So... What are areas that you see people kind of get hung up or stuck when they're new to observables? What are kind of some of the gotchas that can come up? Sure. Yeah, the first thing that people kind of get stuck with, for example, is you know they think that things start to fire immediately. For example, when they're doing a, a scan operation, which is an incremental reduce operation, they think that, oh, the values will just start to flow immediately. It's not quite that way. Observables are lazy, so therefore they're not going to start emitting anything until you call subscribe. That's you know, And then usually you have to call start with to actually give it a real value. It's kind of annoying, but it is what it is with, with Rx. The other aspects seem to be, you know, I want to share the same data stream with someone else. By the fact of, of Rx streams being immutable by default, uh, meaning if I hand you a, a thing of mouse movements, uh, when you call subscribe, you get a whole new collection of mouse moves. You don't get the same collection that I do. People then go, oh, no, 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 I want the same one. Well, that's when you get into all this whole connectable stuff that I'd rather not get into, but it's the people get hung up on the sharing aspects of streams. Another part is this whole notion of hot versus cold observables. And the easiest kind of way to describe that is is a hot observable is what I'm going to go see a play. So a play could have different actors on a different day and more or less it's the same story, but you know there could be variations on a on a given day. And that's you know perfectly analogous to to mouse movements, mouse clicks, etc. It's not a constant thing. And when you start listening to it, it is basically when when you start getting data. Now compare and contrast that to what we will call cold observables is like a movie. So a movie, in the in the very fact of I can go and I can oh I started in the middle of it. Oh, I'm going to go back to the beginning and catch up from the beginning, and I'm going to replay the whole thing for you. Uh, so, you know, anytime you take an array, uh, you take a set, you take a generator, etc., I'm going to produce you the same value time and time and time again. Whereas, I, like I said, in, in mouse movements, it just doesn't make sense to start recording mouse movements from the beginning of time. But with, with arrays and so forth, you want that kind of assurance that you get all of those values that you expect to be in that collection. And people sometimes get hung up on that hot versus cold thing. And uh, some people who have implemented some form of Rx, such as Reactive Cocoa, uh, have made a distinct uh, separation between the two of those very, what people will call very different terms. And functional reactive programming itself has also made that very distinction very well known, which is uh, the difference between a behavior, a thing with a constant value, and a signal or event, a discrete event. So that's really some of the the hang-ups that people get caught up on. 
Sure. But then again, I'm deep in the weeds, so I need <laughs> to <laughs> Well, no, I mean, that's a good sign that you know what some of the hangups are because yeah. that means that, I mean, any technology has downsides. Any technology has things that are tricky for people to get into it at first. And I always get a little scared when it's like, what's hard about this? And someone's like, nothing. If it's hard, yeah, no, <laughs> that's, that's when you worry that they're not telling you something. I'll tell you up front. Yeah. That there, that there is a learning curve. Absolutely, I, I will grant anyone that there is a learning curve. But as soon as you start, you know, breaking down the, this idea to saying that uh, that this mouse is is basically a database that I can query just as much as I can query MongoDB or or you know whatever I want to query, then it becomes a lot easier because you're thinking in maps and filters and so forth. You're like, oh. I can apply the same thing to arrays. Now I can apply it to mouse movements. But I get this extra added bonus of this time element to it. And that's the easiest way I, I've found to explain it to people is now you've got this collection over time that you can query. Yeah. Have you seen these ideas influence other technologies or, or frameworks that have come out or become popular since then? I mean, certainly there are a lot of frameworks that try, but basically are influenced by Rx certainly out there. And, and I would certainly say that React has taken a lot of ideas and looked at it for ideas for Flux and for React itself. So it's certainly been some influence there. Where it's been a, a lot of influence, I would say, is, is in a, the Dart programming language, for example. If you take a look at their async uh, stack, it's basically Rx all over again. So anything there, which is kind of a, a neat thing, is they kind of took the I.O. nature of streams and events such as mouse movements and combined it into one thing. Uh, so now you could treat mouse movements and, and a stream of data as kind of the same thing. You get the same uh, maps and filters, etc., and the world's a happy place. And unfortunately, Node didn't go that way. And then there's a uh, W3C Streams proposal, which is also pretty much following a lot of what uh, Node Streams did, but adding promises on top of it. They could have done a better job of saying, I'm going to you know, take something like Observable and look at that as, as a basis for that instead of something that's super fairly low-level I.O. related. Uh, you know, something that you could really, really reuse for a lot of things. What about stuff like, have you looked at Elm at all? I know they kind of build oh, yeah. FRP into the yeah, the, core uh, of the language. Yeah, so so with Elm uh, is a is pretty much a uh, a language that's kind of looks like Haskell, and what what they call it is is FRP or errorized FRP, and I, you know, I'd rather not get down into the into the weeds of whether it is or is not FRP. I'll let that to, you know to Connell Elliott, who created FRP, because you know quite honestly, it, it's it, it's a very much a religious battle about you know the whole really. Thing. About the whole term, absolutely. In that, Econo Elliott and the late Paul Hudak created this term about 1998. And it was primarily to deal with continuous time versus discrete time. So a lot of systems, especially distributed, uh, were talking about using discrete time. And in the world of, you know, in, in the world of events and so forth, that's you know that's when you're talking about discrete time, but when you're talking about something like a clock and so forth, that always has a value, and it's and, and it's dealing with continuous time. Uh, so you know, think of your clock as something that always has a value and continues over time, and then you've got this separation of discrete events. What we'll call is something like a mouse click. Well, a mouse click doesn't always have a value right now. Uh, so that's, you know, that, that's kind of a discrete thing. So what we was talking about really was talking about the idea of having this algebra, as it were, to, to kind of combine these two into a single thing, call it functional reactive programming. You know, there's much more grandiose title that it came up with, but the easiest thing at the time, back in 1998 when this was created, was, was FRP. And what he created was a language called Fran, which was a few Win32 executables. I don't know if they still run on Windows at all, but it was a very interesting experiment. And from there, you know, there's been some follow-on research and so forth. So throughout Rx history, you know, we've, we've definitely said that we respect the founding of, of FRP. And we know that we, for example, do not deal with continuous time it would, as it would be 
pretty much impossible to model that in JavaScript itself. You, you just really can't do that because you're dealing with with ticks, uh, you know, next ticks and callbacks and so forth. But what you're supposed to be doing is dealing with the, with those things as if there weren't any callbacks at all. So you know, X would just magically change on its own without any callbacks or anything. So taking that to Elm, so Elm leaves off that notion of continuous time. So there's there's been that controversy, as it were, as to whether that's FRP or not. And I, like I said, I'll leave that judgment to uh, to the founder of, of FRP. But like I said, I won't advertise RX as, as as FRP because it's not. It's only dealing with discrete events. And Elm also follows the same way as they're dealing with signals, which are discrete events. But what's really neat about that language is it really kind of distills down to these these first class events in such a way that you can do some really, really neat things, uh, especially with their replay logic where you can kind of go forwards and backwards in, in, in time, which I think is really, really cool. And it allows for some really nice game programming, some really nice front ends, because it's really easy to, to model things such as gravity and so forth. I mean, I took, uh, we took one of those examples with it using RX uh, and, uh, well, we, uh, we took the Elm example of using Mario and then tr- basically transported it into RX. So it, it's not as beautiful, obviously. You're dealing with a lot more semicolons, curly braces, and, and so forth uh, than the Elm example. So if you're really comfortable with the Haskell world, I, you know, Elm is a wonderful language. And it's kind of a, a neat thing to be able to prototype uh, new UIs using it. And it's really fast as well, which is another great thing. Would I like to see something like React and something like that with it? Abs- you know, kind of more declarative UIs in terms of mixing and matching HTML with Elm, absolutely, versus more declarative UIs that you're talking about directly in the code. Either way, it's still a very cool language. So the, the thing I got from that is developers will fight to the death over any arbitrary distinction. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> FRP, not FRP, tabs versus spaces, semicolons, no semicolons. Oh, absolutely. But it, le- yeah, it doesn't but matter I, how many yeah. academic papers you read. You just fight about things that have oh. more complicated names. Oh, oh, exactly. I mean, could FRP have chosen a different name that was a little bit more descriptive? Sure. But this is 1998. We're talking about, you know, kind of the, the birth. Uh, still of the internet and you know desktop apps and so forth, and so it was kind of a, a term chosen way back when. And you know, quite honestly, I'd, I'd like to you know honor his original intents. And I'm like, well, I don't fall into that, so I'm not going to call uh, my stuff that. In fact, I, you know. sure. So, so yeah, we will disagree about certain things, but at least in terms of his intent of the paper versus what people call uh, their particular things, uh, don't always match. And so that's where you're going to have to quibble in the semantics of whether, you know, someone is right or wrong. That makes sense. We've been talking about observables and RX interchangeably. Are observables in ES 2016, I think Mm -hmm. that's right, Mm -hmm. are are they going to replace RX? As a base, probably, yes. Uh, That would probably be a, you know, probably be a thing. And then you would basically have RX as kind of an add-on layer, as it were. So we would add on all of the operators or all of the things like map filter and et cetera that aren't in the standard itself. Uh, so basically you're, you're building this nice, you know, this nice facade on this bare object, as it were. And so, yeah, absolutely. Rx would, uh, would easily come in and fix some of those things. And not only that, but add in things like, uh, the concurrency layer via the schedulers that we, have as you know kind of the core part of our acts that, that we don't really talk about and that is probably one of the more interesting aspects uh, which allows for us to do you know virtual time testing so that i can for example say that this event happened at this particular time this transformation happened at this particular time and this particular filtering operation happened at this particular time and then i can you know, run it a thousand times and I will always get the same answer. That's a great thing that we've kind of built in. So instead of having c- continuous time, which we talked about as being part 
of FRP, we have this notion of virtual time so that you could literally swap out your concurrency layer at any point in computation. So, for example, one really useful uh, thing to do would be, for example, if I am doing some sort of animation. Now, animations you really only want to do via request animation frame. So, you know, to get a nice transition, make sure you're not overly beating up on your machine. Well, in RxJS DOM, we have request animation frame scheduler, so you can basically say, okay, I'm going to do some drawing, and then I want to use the request animation frame scheduler to basically schedule all the work using request animation frame, and it just goes and does it there. Otherwise, you know, we can use any number of things, such as if, if we had something like, I want to schedule on the mutation observer, which goes really fast. I want to use set immediate. I want to use process next tick. I want to use uh, set timeout. Whatever that mechanism happens to be, uh, we can use it via schedulers. And that's one of the really cool parts about dealing with this particular thing is, is this underlying scheduler has so much control about how, where, and when things happen. So adding those things into the spec, I think, would be would be super, super useful. Or on top of it, rather. It doesn't sound like there are any other questions, so let's go ahead and do some picks. Before we get to the picks, I just want to acknowledge our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by TrackJS. Let's face it, errors cost you money. You lose customers, server resources, and time to them. Wouldn't it be nice if someone told you how and when they happened so you could fix them before they cost you big time? You may have this on your back-end application code, but what about your front-end JavaScript? It's time to check out TrackJS. It tracks errors and usage and helps you find bugs before your customers even report them. Go check them out at trackjs.com slash jsjabber. This episode is sponsored by CodeSchool. CodeSchool is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teaches through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, CodeSchool has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can sign up at codeschool.com slash javascriptjabber. Amy, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. So my first pick was going to be something I saw this week that probably was all over Twitter, but it's a cartoon guide to Flux. And so I'm a pretty visual learner, and I enjoyed looking at that. Uh, The second pick, again, is like a visual thing. It's a promise visualizer. Uh, So again, because I'm visual, that was really, really helpful. So those are my two picks for this week. All right. Jameson, what are your picks? I also have two picks. The first one is an album by my favorite band. I think they've finally taken over the top spot. Um, It's Act 4, Rebirth and Reprise by the Deer Hunter. They make these kind of like epic, melodic prog rock albums. um, And they're all concept albums about this continuous story of this kid's life. I think they're up to about World War II now. It starts off in like the late maybe the early 20th century, late 19th century. And then it kind of just follows him and all, all the stuff that happens in his life. I wouldn't care about that, except the music is actually really good. And so it just kind of adds another layer onto it. So I've been listening to that nonstop and it's amazing. Uh, my next pick is a talk by, forgot her real name. I only have her Twitter handle, Jesse Char. Um, I think she's an iOS developer, but it's called Expert of Nothing. And it's about uh, a few different things. But one of the things I really liked is she, she talks about the plague of thought leaderism and the need to appear like you're certain about everything and, and to, to avoid ambivalence or nuance in order to say these like strong, powerful statements that attract people to your ideas and how that's not really how the world works. Um, and, and there's value in recognizing two sides, not being apathetic between the two, but recognizing that the trade-offs make things more complicated than just like, this is always better. Except for RxJS. Sorry, this isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just <laughs> Besides like, that. I was like, you're wrong. Uh, that's obviously <laughs> a terrible answer. Yeah. It's yeah. Rx for everything. There, there are some things that are better, but there are also some things that only you just sound cool if you say they're better. Um, and I really like that about her talk. So not a future marketing. <laughs> sorry. All right. Well, Dave, what are your picks? Yeah, sorry, I cut you off, Jameson. Okay. No, I couldn't uh, even hear because uh, you're so quiet. So I just yeah. pulled over you. All right. I have two picks today. One is a nifty feature that I rediscovered and re enjoyed 
this week in the Chrome Developer Tools, which is the feature called XHR Breakpoints. This is where you can add a breakpoint so that anytime your JavaScript code issues an AJAX request, you can cause a breakpoint to happen and um, you can filter it so that you know, only certain AJAX requests will actually trigger the breakpoint. That in conjunction with the magical async checkbox, which I think might be checked by default days, lets you reconstruct to find the code that um, actually initiated that AJAX request, which is super handy. Uh, the second one is a YouTube channel, some internet entertainers called, little show called Glove and Boots, which is a, a few puppets that do some kind of funny stuff, and some of them are pretty darn hilarious. So those are my picks. All right. Joe, do you have some picks for us? You bet. Absolutely. So I want to pick programming. One, because I think programming is pretty cool, but mostly because programming is a really awesome discipline because unlike many other disciplines, programming is one of those things where a guy in his garage can make an amazingly significant change on the world. And so case in point would be the own programming language. Evan's doing his uh, undergraduate thesis at school and essentially all by himself invents this really awesome language and it is having a very positive effect on the industry and it's just a one example of a gazillion examples you could come up with, which is why I think programming is awesome. So, now, in, in the case of Elm, it wasn't a garage. I think it was history class, right? <laughs> yeah, guy in history class. <laughs> bored, to, bored to tears with whatever the current subject was and said, I'm going to write a thesis on something crazy. And uh, so because of that, my second pick is going to be Evan's thesis for Elm. I've actually been reading it, and it, like all theses, it's not exactly light reading, but it is very interesting, and I find it to be digestible, certainly, just with a little bit of a thought. And what our guest was talking about today about RxJS and the history of it and the guys that invented it and then this continuous time thing, he actually talks about and explains a lot of that in his thesis. So I'm going to pick Evan's thesis, his thesis on Elm, which you can easily find online by Googling, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And that will be my second pick. All right. I'm going to hop in and pick a book. It's called The Alchemist. It's by uh, Paolo Coelho. I'm sure I said that wrong. But it's it's one of those allegorical books, sort of like if you read The Richest Man in Babylon or I've read a couple of others I'm trying to remember names of. But anyway, so it's a story of this young man who uh, travels to find his treasure and it's all about kind of your life's calling and things like that. And anyway, it's, it's really, really fascinating and I really enjoy it. Uh, or I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed it so far. I'm about a quarter of the way through it. I'm actually listening to it on Audible and it's read by Jeremy Irons, who, if you're not familiar with him, he's been in a ton of movies. Uh, he was the voice of Scar in The Lion King. He just has this awesome, rich, uh, wonderful narration voice for this book. And so uh, I have to pick the Audible version because it is really good. And yeah, I mean, that's my pick this week. Oh, I'm also going to pick the Ionic Framework. I've been playing with that, and I, I've been enjoying that as well. Matt, what are your picks? Okay, well, uh, I, if I were going to pick a Jeremy Irons thing, let's see. I would probably have him read me the phone book or something like that because it would probably sound just as profound. Him or Alan Rickman or uh, mm -hmm. James Earl Jones or Morgan Freeman probably. I think that would be pretty slick. So anyways, uh, my choices here. Uh, the first one would be uh, the Tali Project, which is one of my other uh, main projects that I work on. And that's the idea is, is basically recreating the peer web. And so that you on your iOS and Android devices and just about anything else can uh, share files peer to peer with one another without any centralized you know, authority, as it were. Uh, so you and I can share photos, we can share pictures, music, whatever, and it just synchronizes via Bluetooth or, uh, or Wi-Fi direct based upon the platform that we're working on. And this has a number of you know, implications anywhere from IoT and factories to enabling people to communicate in, uh, in poor areas to you know, saving someone's life on a battlefield kind of thing. Uh, so that's kind of one of, one of my big bets coming up. 
Uh, the other one is, of course, you know, changing uh, technology education as we know it today, and that is uh, is through the the BBC Microbit, and that is a really kind of a cool little uh, little chipset that's a. Uh, uh, kids can program very, very easily, and it comes with where you can use like seven different jumper cables to make it do various things, but it also has a display that that you can program as well. So I think it'll you know dramatically change how we're doing technical education in the next five years. I think it's just incredible. And since everyone seems to be doing a music pick, let's see, what should I pick out of the hat? Well, let's see. Uh, there's the Minutemen, which is always a, a good listen, even though it was a uh, band back from the 19, early 1980s, uh, post-punk band. But it's always still to this day held a, a pretty close place in my heart. So that's it for me. All right. Well, thank you for coming, and thanks for sharing, and thanks for all of your work on RxJS. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is great. All right. Well, we will wrap this show up, and we'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 